Hello and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 77. Glad to say, as I usually do, it's going to be a great program this week. Lots of very important information to touch on. Uh, you know, try to highlight on this show problems that we're facing, conflicts, uh, analyzing conflicts, but also solutions and, and movement building and, and a lot of those things that we can feel good about that can motivate us to work even harder and hopefully we'll be able to address a little bit of both of those uh, on the program today. But before we can do that, let me just make my usual pitch for Counterpunch, my proverbial song and dance. Uh, I think Counterpunch is, is so critical these days. Um, you know, I was just recently watching uh, a heavier than usual dose of corporate media, a mix of uh, a, a you know dangerous cocktail of Fox News, MSNBC, and CNN. And uh, as I'm going through this stuff, I can't help but feel just how dejected somebody must feel if all they get is the corporate media, just how inundated they are with complete and utter bullshit all the time. And so it reminds me, again, why we need to redouble our efforts in the alternative media on the left, why it's so important to present these alternative viewpoints, critical analysis from a left, progressive, socialist, communist, anarchist perspective, whatever your particular ism might be. I think this is very important, and it's especially important to preserve those spaces that we can count on, that we can trust for that perspective, and I think Counterpunch is really, uh, in, in, in my view, first and foremost among them. Uh, one of the ways you can support Counterpunch is with a subscription to the print magazine. Recently had a couple of emails from people telling me just how uh, my haranguing them every week about that subscription, uh, how it's paid off for them, how they're glad that they did that, they're glad to be supporting Counterpunch and getting this great magazine uh, every other month. So that's one way. Another way is, of course, by donating Donating to Counterpunch using the PayPal button on the website, picking up the phone, calling Becky out there in uh, California, or you know harassing Jeff Sinclair on Twitter, uh, harassing me and me telling you to get a life, you telling me that you're a great listener, I'll say thank you. That will probably be how the exchange will go. And um, you know whatever you got to do, get some Counterpunch merchandise, get a Counterpunch radio T-shirt, which will soon be available. Who knows when, but hopefully soon. Uh, all of those things would be great. And, of course, if you want to follow my work outside of this podcast, you can always go to my website, stopimperialism.org. Uh, I've been sort of derelict in posting there every single day, so hopefully that'll pick up. Anyway, all of that out of the way, I want to turn to my guest this week. I'm very happy to welcome Emery Wright onto the show. Uh, Emery Wright is the co-director of Project South, a very important uh, organization and initiative that you should be following that we're going to talk about in depth. You can go to their website, projectsouth.org, and follow them on Twitter, at Project South. So with that said, Emery Wright, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Hey, Eric. It's great being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. I'm, I'm so happy to have you on the show because, as I said there in the introduction, uh, I try to get a mix of you know analysis of our problems, but also talking to people who are working at solutions to a lot of these problems. And that's really, I think, where I want to begin this conversation. So for, for the uninitiated, for people who maybe don't know your organization, don't know the work you're doing, tell us a little bit about Project South. What is that organization? What are the initiatives that it's spearheading, and why is it important? 
Great. Yeah. Well, uh, Project South, we were uh, founded 30 years ago, um, uh, really in 1986 in West Alabama, and really founded as a education arm of social movement um, work in the U.S. South. But uh, since that time, you know, a little bit more than 30 years ago, we have um, expanded some of the some of the work that we do, but it's always been rooted in how to support the development of strong social movements that can t- that can contend with you know all of the um, the various um, forces that we're up against you know um, from from corporate consolidation of power to um, you know policies and practices of white supremacy, gender oppression, you know, we need, we really have always believed that it's going to take strong social movements to contend with these forces. And so that's what Project South is all about. Absolutely. And and in a broader sense, one of the things that I think is really important and where Project South fits into, I think, a more uh, uh, national discussion, if you will, is this question about popular assemblies. We hear a lot about popular assemblies. We, we even read uh, to some degree in the alternative media, you know, that we have this organization, popular assembly, that organization, popular assembly. But I want to just nail down what exactly that means, because I'd be willing to bet not everybody involved with popular assemblies would have the same definition. So from your perspective, from the perspective of Project South and and, and uh, where you're coming from, what is a popular assembly? Well, you know, like you said, a popular assembly could mean a lot of different things. For us, it is a process um, that is connected to something that we've been working on since about 2008. And uh, we call them people's movement assemblies. And the people's movement assembly started, um, really the first one we held was uh, the last day of the United States Social Forum in 2007, which took place in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, we had 20,000 people gathered from all over the country and really wanted to stay true to the principles and sort of um, leadership of the World Social Forum. And so um, at the World Social Forums, which had been happening, um, you know, throughout the world for almost a decade at that point, um, they always ended with a social movement assembly. And so you had movement representatives and workers, um, organizers, activists from all over the world coming together at these world social forums and they would do a social movement assembly that was a time where they could come together and make decisions, implement those decisions. One of the big decisions that um, really made world history was um, the um, International Day of Action against uh, the wars in Iraq that happened before the U.S. invaded Iraq. That came out of a, a social movement assembly at the World Social Forum. So in Atlanta, we developed the People's Movement Assembly to be that same idea where all of the folks who had gathered, the many organizations, social justice groups, workers' rights groups, youth organizations from across the country to come together and make decisions about work that they were going to commit to doing with one another. But since that time in 2007, we really um, have developed it into an organizing process, um, a, um, a process that can work at the community level in terms of uh, community governance. It's been developed as a process that can work uh, these people's movement assemblies um, as a way where particular front lines of struggle, let's say organizations working on the Gulf Coast contending with 
all of the different um, issues that they're facing there on the Gulf Coast, they can have a PMA in order to make decisions about how they're going to contend with those issues. And then um, more recently, we've been developing the People's Movement Assembly as a process of movement governance. So how can movements come together across issue, across sector, across borders um, and boundaries that divide us make decisions and implement those decisions together. And at the end of the day, that's what um, I believe many of the assemblies that Project South is involved in and that many other organizations are, are involved in. It's about um, it's about governance and taking the power of governance back into the grassroots and into ordinary people's hands. Absolutely. Now, uh, to press a little bit further on that, though, and the reason I'm going, I'm going to explain why I'm pressing further on that question, because one of the one of the takeaways that that many people, including myself, had from a movement like Occupy was that the energy was there, the excitement, the enthusiasm, the desire for radical change was there, but the mechanisms for decision-making, the mechanisms for governance, the mechanisms for actually for actually building the movement in a, let's call it, cohesive way, that, in my view and in the view of many others, was certainly lacking. And so... What I'm trying to uh, understand, and I'd like to get your analysis of this, is how does the popular assembly, popular movement model address this question of, as you mentioned, governance and decision making uh, without getting bogged down in the minutia? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, Occupy is a great example to look at. Um, you know, um, it, it's it's something that definitely, um, you know, played an important role, like you said, had had a radical um, uh, message and, and the framework of the one percent and the ninety nine percent was really, really strong. But I think in um, in Occupy, you see two things um, that that maybe didn't allow that um, that energy and that momentum to carry forward. One, um, and it's an important aspect of the People's Movement Assemblies, is to connect to a continuum of history of struggle that, regardless of where we're working, there are continuums of radical liberationist um, history that we can connect to if we, if we you know, decide to. And so um, I think that in, in social movement building, that's just a really important aspect we have to connect to our historical past and contend with it. Um, there's there's um, stuff to learn there, both that worked and didn't work in in all of our liberation histories. Um, but in in Occupy, you had this um, this other message that was sort of they were they were better. You know, they had they they weren't necessarily connecting to um, sort of a historical continuum of struggle, whether that's workers' rights. Um, or labor histories or, or student movement histories um, that it was sort of seen as um, as a new th thing and something different from um, what's happened before. And so I think in the people's movement assemblies, um, whether they're happening in, you know, Jackson, Mississippi, or whether they're happening in uh, Dothan, Alabama, they all connect to the histories and the liberation history of that place. And I think that's what makes them sort of strong, grounded, um, forced to be intergenerational and, and a lot of other aspects that make it um, very strong. And then the second piece besides connecting to history is 
uh, we have to build infrastructure that can hold the power that we build in our social movement activity and our organizing campaigns um, and in and broad struggles that we're engaged in. And so that infrastructure is the practice of decision making, how we can, you know, one aspect of that movement infrastructure Project South is very interested in is how can we build the capacity for this governance to happen in a way that, like you said, doesn't get bogged down in, in minutia of process and structure, but is democratic, is inclusive to people who are um, directly affected, um, and doesn't sort of, um, you know, tries to learn lessons from history about what's worked and hasn't worked. One example, um, a big process that the um, that Project South is involved in is the Southern Movement Assembly. And this is a, um, a process that's governed by 14 organizations across the Southeast region. Um, there's dozens and dozens of organizations across the U.S. South that are participating. And, um, and we have been very slow to build sort of um, structure and really have followed the principle that form follows function. And so we didn't think about, you know, what are all the things, the structures we could imagine possible and let's put those in place before we get started. We just said, you know, let's get started based on where we're at. A couple years in, a, an important piece of structure that we added was um, a principles of unity document. And so that was something that we needed to sort of ground the process um, in, in a political framework and also in, um, in something that could sort of bond a multi-issue, multi-generational, um, you know, um, multiracial uh, bottom-up movement building process. And so for us, um, you know, the two big lessons are connecting to our history, contending with that history, but also building infrastructure at a, at a way that makes sense and that really form follows function. Let's not get, you know, bogged down in all this stuff around voting and, and procedure. We can come together and make decisions by consensus and as we need new structures, we built that into the Southern Movement Assembly process. You know, one of the things that always interests me about these uh, discussions about, you know, the, the the way that organizations and, and organizing units should function, how decisions should be made, is that oftentimes we find ourselves retreading the same ground that's been tread by people for the last hundred years or more. I mean, you could go back and read Lenin about democratic centralism and, and the, uh, you know, notions of democracy within the Soviet struggle. You could read about it from an anarchist perspective. You could read read about it from a post-Soviet perspective and many, many others. And you find that, at least I do, that a lot of the questions that came up in Occupy, you can find antecedents for. So to me, even the question of structure itself has to connect to historical narrative so that we're actually building on what came before rather than, for lack of a better word, reinventing the wheel. That's right. That is that is absolutely right. And um, and that's why it's so important to connect to that history. And, and you know, we do it in in um, a, a several different ways in terms of the Southern Movement Assembly process, the sites and locations where we have Southern Movement Assemblies. We're very um, we're very conscious about where we choose to have these Southern Movement Assemblies. We've had six in different parts of the U.S. South since 2012. The very first one was in Lowndes County, Alabama, at the site of the where the Lowndes County Freedom Organization held power in the mid-1960s through 1968. Um, 
they had a liberated space there. They were contending with clan violence almost on a nightly basis. Um, they, um, out of that process, the original Black Panther Party was created, the Lowndes County Black Panther Party, um, as a as a political platform. Um, and so, having our first Southern Movement Assembly there um, forced us to connect to that history. One, because veterans from Lowndes County Movement days still live in Lowndes County, and they came. Um, two, because we also really make a point to um, to remain intergenerational. You know, there are um, a lot of um, uh, youth and and young um, um, led organizations and in, uh, involved in the Southern Movement Assembly process. But there's also the National Council of Elders. Um, we have organizations um, that represent sort of the age group from. Uh, young teenagers through people in their in their 80s. And so that, you know, they the OGs remind us of the lessons from back in the day and um, and are painfully aware of some of the um, limitations of how, how we structured um, some of these movement processes back in the day. And so are very willing to share that. And that's been a real critical aspect of how we've been able to grow over this last four or five years in the Southern Movement Assembly. Can you tell me a little bit, and this is something that always interests me when talking about these broader movement issues, is what is the dichotomy between some of the local organization uh, organizations and organizational units or formations or whatever you want to call them versus a more national, broad coalition approach? I mean, obviously, it's not one or the other, but I'm, but it's not always so clear whether, you know, a, a local organization is, is independent and autonomous. Is it connected to other organizations? How do people in the movement see their place within a broader uh, landscape, both nationally and internationally. That's right. You know, um, it's that's been also a, a sort of critical aspect of the um, Southern Movement Assembly process is to think about um, interrelationship and interdependence across um, communities, across uh, organizations, and, um, and across a lot of the many different boundaries that divide us, including the international borders. Uh, we just had a meeting here in Atlanta the, of um, a project we're involved in called the University Sin Fronteras, and um, it's a university without borders and without walls. It's one of the anchor organizations in the Southern Movement Assembly, and we had um, um, we have campuses from um, Bemidji, Minnesota, to San Juan, Puerto Rico, offices in Mexico. Um, Uniontown, Alabama, Birmingham, Alabama, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Atlanta, Georgia. But it's it's consciously trying to make sure that we bring um, people across some of these um, international borders into a common conversation about our movement building and in this aspect, our movement education work that we're doing together. And I think that's critical. I also think, you know, as it relates to the, the national question um, in terms of um, national movements, um, this is a, this is a very large country and, and it's, it's made up of many different regions. And so while a lot of projects might call themselves national projects because they have an office in New York and an office in California to really have um, a national character um, of, of any movement work in this country has to be built from the bottom up. 
And it's going to mean um, a lot of these sort of regions within the U.S. have to start to build their power from the bottom up, but not in a way that's looking inward um, or a sort of parochial way, but in a way that's looking outward and how to become interdependent with other regions or other subregions within regions like the U.S. South. And so that that interconnectedness and sort of coordinated but decentralized has uh, been a big um, way that we've been building this Southern Movement Assembly process. You know, one of the other things that comes to my mind when I when I discuss a lot of these issues is another dichotomy, and that is between you know this notion of bottom up organi- organization, grassroots organization building, horizontalism, whatever you know, many different terms for 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 a lot of those ideas, versus what is I think too often derisively called top down leadership, which oftentimes emphasizes to varying degrees things like structure, organization, leadership positions, things like that. And to me, one of the, one of the, uh, let's say trickier things to negotiate in building a movement is understanding the value of both of those things and understanding that they're not necessarily mutually exclusive and that, uh, some, some, you know, quote unquote, top down leadership is necessary, but without becoming authoritarian and so forth. So negotiating these nuances in terms of structure, in terms of organizing, I think is another critical aspect of movement building. I think that's right. I mean, I think that, um, there are, like like we've been saying in this conversation, there are a lot of lessons to learn from the um, hundreds of years of um, radical movement history that that we have um, behind us. And and so, um, in the name of uh, bottom up organizing, we shouldn't be um, we shouldn't be uh, sloppy around ideas of um, sort of rigorous. Um, educational practice, for example, um, that the two are not mutually exclusive, Um, clear leadership development pipelines, but also um, leadership is going to um, play out whether we recognize it or not. Power is going to play out whether we recognize it or not. And I think um, the the key is it just has to happen um, in a principled way when, um, when some of these processes aren't grounded in a shared set of principles, that's where you start to see some of the authoritarianness or or, um, different forms of unprincipled behavior that really are counter movement building um, start to come into play. But um, a big lesson we've we've tried to learn from history is how can we um, not how can we be inclusive enough to um, allow for sort of mass based organizing, mass leadership development to happen um, in a way which is going to mean multiple approaches, multiple viewpoints. Um, but it's also, it has to be ga- grounded in a, in a common set of principles that don't allow for um, sort of reformist um, thinking to, to seep in because the current is going to push us towards um, reformist solutions um, that might seem easier in the short term, but are really going to undermine any sort of movement work in the long term. Absolutely. Um, another another issue that I'd just like to touch on with you, and I brought it up uh, a number of episodes ago uh, in a conversation with Kali Akuno of Cooperation Jackson, for listeners who want to go back and check out that episode for some background, um, 
one of the one of the things that I think we often come up against as well in this sort of grassroots movement building question is about the goals of the movements that were and and you know organizations that we're developing and what I mean is that I think that too too often the goals are seen as in exclusively political or social justice terms. And I think that oftentimes that's a mistake because we forget about the economic question, obviously from a, you know, from a purely materialist analysis, that is really what, you know, moves, uh, you know, history. It is the struggle between classes. It is economic production and so forth. So my question is to what extent is Project South and some of the organizations that it works with addressing this economic production question as well. I know that's something that Cooperation Jackson is very uh, uh, focused on. So tell me a little bit about the economic side of this, the creation of, as you called it, an architecture. Uh, That's something that is key as far as uh, transforming the means and mode of production. That's right. That is absolutely right. And, uh, you know, the work at uh, Cooperation Jackson is a real um, beacon in terms of how some of this um, and an example of how some of this work can happen that both has um, a sort of a political practice and an economic um, practice as well. You know, I, for us, uh, a huge, um, for the world, a huge movement lesson that we all have the opportunity to reflect on and, and many of us have been reflecting on over this last year is the Cuban Revolution? I think with the um, with the death of Fidel, um, you know there was there was a call made that we need to go back and and really study that revolution and um, and and one of the things you'll see is this question of um, of building a new social economy from the bottom up. I mean um, that was that was um, it was part and parcel of the Cuban Revolution. One of the the first industries that. Um, what's developed within the Cuban Revolution, as many of the listeners might know, was the industry of of um, of making shoes, and um, and so it wasn't any industry. It was an industry that was um, that was connected to the success of the liberation struggle. If you're marching through the jungle, shoes can be a big difference between success and failure. And so, um, and so I think for us, our economic development practices have to um, contribute to the overall liberation struggle work that we're involved in. And so um, if um, a lot of our communities are, are suffering from high, high rates of joblessness. Um, food is hum- hard to come by. And so food production um, is is a practical way of um, both building a new social economy practice, but also um, contributing to the success in many ways, not just through the providing of food, but the way we uh, produce food, the, um, the sort of um, community building possibilities of, of food production um, are, are huge in terms of um, our Southern Movement Assembly process. We have uh, one of the aspects of the Southern Movement Assembly. We have something called the Southern People's Initiative, and it's broken into three parts. One is people's democracy. The second is to protect and defend. And the third is new social economy. And so within that third area, um, we're we're playing with a lot of examples of building a practice of economic 
um, production, you know, that complements our movement building work. And we also have to contend with um, policies almost as an act of self-defense that um, that make it hard for workers to organize. Um, that's so. Um, so, you know, many of the states, um, not only in the U.S. South, but it's now become national, are right to work states that make it very hard for workers to unionize and build collective power. And so we have to contend with those policies, too, as we're building a sort of new social economy practice at the grassroots. No doubt about it. And, and, and really, to kind of hammer the point home, um, part of what it means to be revolutionary, at least in my view, is in is in understanding and, and finding solutions to the actually existing everyday problems in a given society, in a given, uh, you know, uh, social unit or whatever. And so as as you were mentioning, Emery, I mean, food production is obviously key, but it goes much, you know, it goes much further than that if you are able to provide things like educational opportunities to provide things like you know textile manufacturing and all sorts of very basic industrial production that then frees up people to actually participate in a lot more of the political side of the organizing because at the end of the day a person's not going to get politically engaged if all of their time is devoted to making sure their children have food in their stomach and clothes on their back and I think that too often uh, a lot of our political organizations in this country especially neglect that side of the organizing equation. That's right, you know, and um, and a lot of it is, you know, for 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 several reasons. I mean, one reason is I think that a lot of social justice work in this country um, really gets um, orchestrated from the top down, and it's 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 really sort of um, sometimes veiled and sometimes explicitly being run by sort of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Yes. And um, and they're not interested in um, in a new social economy, you know, and um, and so um, so funding and and um, and different ways work is supported and highlighted, you know, um, that plays out in that way. But another way, you know, that I think it plays out is that um, there is there is sometimes these um, upsurges of activity that are very, very, very powerful and and um, and are, are very important to the movement building process. But if when these when these upsurges happen, we have to also have our organizing minds on and um, and organize the unorganized and 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 that is many many people in this country. Um, that's that's the the majority of people are not organized into um, building social movement into building um, their community the way that most people would want to be and so. Um, but when you're out there organizing, you have to deal with these economic questions, and that's why I think. Um, we can learn a lot, as you mentioned, from movement work in the global south because they are contending with their communities and the realities of their communities. And the economic question is always front and center. And so it has to be built in to any authentic movement building process. There's no doubt about it. And just a final point on that, building off what you just said, the other sort of, 
I, I think, critical uh, piece to keep in mind is that when we're internationalizing these struggles, particularly talking about uh, oppressed communities, both within the United States and, and in the global south in general, many, many times we find that they are on the front lines of all of the struggles. It, it, for instance, just as one example, it is it is black people and people of color generally in the global south who are the most directly impacted by climate change right now today. And we saw this in the United States, of course, as well. I think the prime example being Hurricane Katrina, where you see the ravages of now, what was that now, like 12 years ago, 11 and a half years ago, and it's still, yep. you see these devastated communities. You still see people trying to address and grapple with all of these questions. And so when we're talking about things like, you know, uh, uh, revolutionary organizing in black communities, revolutionary organizing among Hispanic communities, or even uh, um, among community, not communities of color, you have to keep in mind that oftentimes they are going to be in the lead and they're going to be on the front lines because for a lot of those communities, these are existential questions. And that's something for white comrades, I think, to keep in mind. Definitely, definitely, you know, and um, yeah, like you said, I mean, the issue of, of climate change and um, and climate justice globally is 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 a huge issue that's um, affecting um, communities in Latin America, Africa, Asia the most, and um, issues of migration. You know, uh, this these are these are global issues um, that are also playing out in this country. But um, right now, you know, our movements in this country aren't as strong and vibrant as some of our sisters and brothers in the global south, and um, and so you know, it's it's that much more important to make these connections, um, to share information, practices, and, um, and ways of doing things so we can really advance um, our movements. Because, you know, our assessment of this time period is that we are in the midst of fundamental shifts in uh, the global economy and the global um, um, mechanisms of governance. And so what's next is is contested. And so it is going to it is going to take strong social movements to really contend with um, the corporate powers, the, the finance powers um, and, and military powers, the um, the bosses of extraction that have, you know, many of whom are now in the Trump administration. Um, you know, we have to contend with these powers and it's going to take all we have is we don't have their billions of dollars, but we have billions of people. And um, and so we need to, you know, organize that into collective strength to contend with these powers we're up against. And um, and so I think that's a huge aspect of of what we're involved with, with the Southern Movement Assembly. And it's a, it's something that's rooted in the U.S. South. But as we also know from this country's history, Southern Movement has had um, major national impacts on um, the way things are done in this country. And in this time, we think, you know, we can have we can have an impact beyond our region. But it's also important that we connect to the Caribbean, connect to um, South America and um, and, uh, you know, we share a border with um, Mexico in terms of the um, the Gulf. You know, that is a region in and of itself. You mentioned Hurricane Katrina, that that region is has includes Mexico includes Cuba, you know, includes uh, a lot of countries that are outside these national borders. 
No doubt about it. Uh, final point just on that. Um, you know, way back when, I don't remember, listeners, you'll have to go find it, but my conversation with uh, Emmanuel Ness, uh, his book, Southern Insurgency, The Making of a Global Working Class, I think is very germane to what we're talking about here because the, the, the very notion of workers and working class and working class solidarity is, by virtue of the globalized capitalist economy, a global question. So when we're talking about marginalized communities and, and, you know, throughout the global south, we are talking about a global working class. And I think it needs to be understood in that way. So organizing within these communities is part of the class struggle. And, and I bring that up only because I'm frankly get sick and tired of this uh, false debate between, well, is it class politics or is it identity politics? In fact, those two things are, are intimately linked and it's time. I think that people understood just how inseparable they are. That's right, you know, and um, they are, and and I think power sometimes understands that, and 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 um, the ruling class sometimes understands that in a way that um, that we don't appreciate how interlinked, you know, these things are. For for the Democratic Party, for the Republican Party. It's important to break society into um, these manageable groupings and um, states, you know, um, they think in terms of states, they think in terms of counties, um, and they think in terms of what are the white working class people doing? What are the black working class people are doing? But um, we, we need to be thinking across these boundaries and borders that were set up to divide us and, um, and so it's it's easier said than done. There's very real issues that we have to contend with. There's there's very real, um, you know, divisions that we have to build bridges across. But that is part of the, the class struggle, as you're saying. It's part of the the work of movement building in this time. And so um, so that's a big emphasis of the work that we're involved in is is, you know, there's an example of um, the extraction economy. Um, the coal mine industry in Appalachia produces this grotesque amount of coal ash waste. Um, it's toxic. It, it, wherever it is, it's going to create an environmental disaster. And so communities um, that are having that, um, that toxic ash produce, the corporations have made a deal with a community in rural Alabama called Uniontown to um, basically move that coal ash from Appalachia uh, in predominantly working class white communities into Uniontown as um, predominantly black working class community there. And, um, and it's, it's being built as an economic development concept. And so you literally have poison being imported into this community um, that's ravaged one community in Appalachia and is now ravaging another community in Alabama. We have to build those connections. Um, they're, they're already there. We just we just need to make them and find ways to um, to contend with that issue and, and issues like that together. Indeed. Well, uh, a few minutes ago, you you uttered the word Trump that I was hoping to get through an entire half of our conversation without having to hear that word. But it was said the ice has been broken. And uh, when we come back, we will talk about Trump, uh, Agent Orange and what we should expect as far as organizing against the Trump administration and a whole set of questions associated with that. So uh, stick with us. I will continue the conversation with Emery Wright here on Counterpunch Radio. We will be right back. 
back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Emery Wright. You should follow his work. He is the co-director of Project South. Uh, visit their website, projectsouth.org, and follow them on Twitter at Project South. Um, so, Emery, before the break, uh, you, you, you mentioned the unmentionable one. And so uh, let's discuss... President Trump. I still shudder every time I say that phrase. Uh, President Trump, because this is something obviously that is in the foreground of social struggle, of movement building right now. So I want to just begin with a with a general question, and then we can, I guess, take it from there. Um, the Popular Assembly's movement, to, to the extent we can call it a you know lowercase m movement. Has it seen a major upsurge, a major spike since Trump has come in? I mean, obviously, there's all this excitement. There's all this energy among people, especially young people, to organize, to get into the streets, to quote-unquote resist and so forth. So I'm wondering how that's translating into the popular assemblies movement. Yeah, you know, um, it's a good question. When we were having our sixth Southern Movement Assembly in Chattanooga, Tennessee, it was about a month before the election. And what we knew is, regardless of which way the election went, or if it went in some third, you know, unexpected way, we were going to have to have our plan in place. And we couldn't wait until election day to sort of make a plan. And so we had been building uh, something I mentioned earlier, the Southern People's Initiative, for about a year at that point. But at our sixth Southern Movement Assembly, we developed uh, a, what we called a Southern Movement Blueprint, um, a plan of action in a time of crisis. And that blueprint is basically our plan of how we're going to implement the Southern People's Initiative, uh, this three-part initiative with people's democracy, protecting and defending our communities, and building a new social economy. And so... Um, and so, you know, we developed that plan. We, we had it in motion. And um, and so when the election happened and, and as 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 horrible as, as the result was, we were not on our heels um, sort of saying what now we were in motion um, doing the work of the Southern Freedom Movement Blueprint. And um, and but but because we had that plan already in, in process, it it became an entry point for some of this new energy that you mentioned that is emerging. I mean, people are, um, are beyond fed up, you know, people are, um, being attacked, um, from multiple different, um, um, ways, you know, and, and, and in multiple different communities, you have, um, this chilling effect of a, this resurgent sort of old Confederate, white supremacist vigilantism happening, you know, not only here in the South, but across the country. You have, um, of course, these these ICE raids, um, um, you know, impacting immigrant communities. You have this um, really what's becoming a global front line um, to contend with is, is Islamophobia. It's being used as a sort of precondition to um, putting forth these sort of um, this renationalism, you know, that we're that we're um, seeing this xenophobic policies not only in this country and globally. And so, for us, the the um, Trump election uh, was was a horrible thing. It was certainly indicative of a um, 
of a meltdown of the the way governance has happened in this country. Um, and um, and it, but it was also indicated something that's happening across the world. You have these right wing xenophobic populist movements taking state power in in many countries around the world. And and so um, it is something that is is building new energy. Um, we see um, we see a lot more people, you know, wanting to join the movement. And it's um, it's something that has really allowed people to see some of these interconnections um, between communities, between different um, experience groups that um, that we were talking about earlier. Yes, indeed. Now, one of the one of the things since you since you just brought up uh, the sort of wave of right wing uh, neo well nationalism, if we're going to be kind, and neo fascism, if we're going to be a bit more real about it, I think. Um, and part of part of what you see is that these things really emerge uh, in a political landscape that is essentially devoid of any real opposition. So, for instance, I talked to some of my some of my colleagues and comrades in in Britain, and there is very little organized pushback against uh, the far right, against Brexit, against this uh, right-wing reactionary nationalism and, and chauvinism that is outside of the Labour Party. It's really all under the umbrella of the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn, which to some degree is ambivalent on the issue as it tries to appeal to some of the white workers within the Labour the, you know, Party. And so there is, in my view, sort of a political crisis of the left in the UK, just as there is a political crisis of the left in France, where uh, the far-right Marine Le Pen is potentially poised to become the next president later this year. Uh, So the question is, in the United States, we also have, at least within the mainstream of organized political resistance, we have a completely uh, uh, barren landscape where the Democratic Party, which is a slave to Wall Street, a slave to neoliberal uh, capitalism, has now positioned itself and postured as, quote-unquote, the resistance. And so it it really is incumbent on the really existing social movements and and political organizations and revolutionaries to prevent the co-opting of resistance by the Democratic Party. And so, you know, my sort of long-winded speech there aside, how is that being done? What structures and or initiatives are in place or being put in place to prevent the quite predictable attempt at co-opting the resistance against Trump? Yeah, I mean, there you're right. It's and it's it's happening globally. You know, for us, a huge a huge emphasis of not allowing for um, resistance uh, posture postures or resistance efforts to be co-opted by um, Trump or any of these um, sort of uh, fascist formations or um, or the different formations that are that are lining up to co-opt of regular people and their energy. Um, the way we're doing it is um, through really building um, local grassroots power. So um, we, you know, a, a, a huge aspect of the Southern People's Initiative, the blueprint is um, to build these local um, movement assemblies 
at the community level to deal with community concerns locally. And, and so that's one way um, to contend with it. I mean, you have um, this, the, you know, all in the news right now, it's all about um, the, um, the Republicans' replacement of the Affordable Care Act. Well, health care is you had people um, voting for Trump, voting for Clinton, um, who um, neither of these candidates were going to solve their very real health care needs in their families and in their communities. And um, and so yet and still, you know, people are going out and voting, hoping that maybe somebody's going to do something to impact the very real conditions they face in their home. And so I think social movement work has to have a local character and and be sort of built from these many um, local communities that are contending with their their direct needs. And so um, but it can't just stay, you know, local, as we were talking about earlier. We have to connect these local assemblies that are happening all throughout the southeast. There's going to be um, dozens of community based assemblies um, happening all throughout the southeast in the build up to the seventh southern movement assembly. Um, but they're all going to come in with their analysis of what they're facing on the ground and how they're contending with it to share with the other dozens of community assemblies that are happening across the region. There's been 400 assemblies that have happened over the last um, seven years or so um, across the country. And, um, and so we have to connect these local community assemblies that are dealing with local issues across um, regions across borders and boundaries that divide us. And um, and so that's one way to not allow for the co-optation because none of these parties have real solutions for the pr- very real problems that people are facing. And so we have to kind of bring that power back to people and to the people most affected um, to um, one, articulate what do they feel like are their issues and then what solutions do they want to go about um, building and and to connect those um, local solutions across the region. I think that's a huge way we're trying to um, build a force that is um, that is you know led by people most affected by the different forms of oppression we've been mentioning on this show and um, and um, and not get co-opted into whether it's reasons of race, reasons of um, sort of so-called patriotism. Um, that um, people are being sort of steered in other directions um, and, um, and, and, and wedged to be divided apart from each other. So that's some of the work that we're involved in to continue with that. Uh, one of the questions that I keep coming up against, and I've sort of articulated a number of times on social media and elsewhere, and you know, sometimes can get contentious, is the sort of the fine line that we have to walk between Harping on the continuity of the ruling establishment in the U.S., irrespective of if it's a Democrat or a Republican, the things like the militarization of the police, the privatization of public schools, and many, many other examples where you have Democrats, uh, you know, the gutting of welfare and social services and so forth, where you have Democrats who are oftentimes leading the charge or at the very least equivalent to their Republican counterparts. And similarly, 
you know, or in that vein, we've seen the mobilization of a militarized police force under Reagan and then expanded by Bush and then expanded further by Clinton only to be blown up into the giant uh, under George W. Bush and then expanded further under Obama. And so there is this continuum, this evolution of structures of oppression. However, Noting all of that, I think it's also important to note that now that we've moved into this age of Trump, these weapons of oppression, these structures of repression have been handed over to what I think is obviously and clearly the most right-wing, the most reactionary, the most fascist administration that we've seen in this country in generations, in my view. So with that, with that being said, I think a very critical question to be asking of all organizations and all you know social justice advocates and community organizers is how is your organization or how are these many organizations addressing the question question of state power in the age of Trump because you mentioned vigilantism you mentioned you know Alabama and Mississippi and these places in the south where we know the history of violence the lynchings and all of the rest of that well now many of those forces are imbued with the power of the state many of them feel they have a direct uh, representative in the White House certainly a representative uh, within the you know attorney general's office so how are these organizations and popular assemblies addressing the question of self-defense, of defense of their communities, and I mean self-defense in the most, you know, literal sense of the word. Yeah, it's huge for us, you know, in um, the Southern Movement Assembly work. Um, it's it's one of our, one of the three aspects of the Southern People's Initiative is protect and defend our communities. Um, that's one sort of historical lesson that I do think Southern Movement um, is one of the reasons why Southern Movement is so critical in this historical moment, because in, um, not in my lifetime, but in my parents' age lifetime here in the South, um, we did have uh, formations where you had straight up racist fascists who ran, um, who were the head of state. Now, not at the federal level, but at the state level. Um, and you had these vigilante groups that were in cahoots with white citizens councils that were wow. sort of the business community. And so we do have a history, not on this scale, um, but of these type of formations and how they operate together. When when now you hear states' rights um, being talked about again as it's a major push of this new administration. And, um, and, and what that is going to mean is... Um, is is a, a rollback on any basic um, gains that we've made around ideas around civil rights, uh, but it's also going to mean massive corruption. I mean, these people are going to be in the name of states' rights, um, uh, pushing major contracts to all their buddy corporations in these local states to move uh, federal um, tax dollars that are that are the funds of people and of workers um, into. Uh, these these state companies, um, these companies within the various uh, states and the name of infrastructure and in the name of education. And and so it's really going to be a further robbing of the of the um, 
the treasury and and pushing it into the hands of private corporations and you know this moment is is one of direct corporate rule i mean when you have um the head of ExxonMobil as secretary of state if that's not symbolic of of a type of direct corporate rule that we have not experienced in this country before it's been moving in that direction but this is um, this is a new moment for that. And so um, we have to deal with state power um, and and it's it's sort of related cousin of these um, the state violence and it's related cousin in terms of these vigilante groups that are now being sort of through um, through hand signals by people working at the White House on, on national news media and through all sorts of implicit and explicit ways are being sort of encouraged to go out here and shoot people, harm people. And so the issue of self-defense is one that we also have a history around here in the South and is a huge piece of the work. We're developing these mutual aid liberation centers across the region um, as sites to hold um, um, local ground and create liberated space where we um, are not we don't have to call anyone um, from the state power structure when problems emerge in our communities where we can deal um, with those with those problems ourselves. And so the mutual aid liberation centers is one of several ways um, that we're building the ability to protect and contend uh, and defend our community at the grassroots. But again, not just doing it in isolation, but doing it in a way where it connects um, um, across the region, but importantly, also connects rural and urban uh, communities. These um, these liberation uh, centers are also looking at sort of um, rural outlining communities, and some of them, some of the mutual aid liberation centers are are in. Uh, rural communities that um, that have just different conditions and sort of situations that they deal with when it when it relates to violence and state violence and state sanctioned violence. And so um, so this is a huge issue. It's um, it's it's going to continue to be a huge issue. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, we really we need each other right now um, and, and we have to act like it and we have to build processes and structures to allow for collective power to contend with um, all of the forms of direct violence and, and indirect violence that are attacking and tearing apart our communities, sanctuary zones um, that aren't just about creating sanctuary spaces for immigrants, but um, sanctuary spaces for uh, black youth that are criminalized just for how they how they are viewed by society walking down the street. Um, and um, and all of the many different communities, trans communities that are that just contend with power in different ways, but are all being attacked by um, state violence and state sanctioned violence. And so um, this issue of protecting and defending has to be a big push of not only the people's movement assembly work, but our general movement building practice at this time. No doubt. And, and one of the things that really comes across in, in looking at uh, what the current administration is doing is that aside from appointing a neo-Confederate attorney general, aside from all the racist dog whistling and the fascistic elements and ethno-nationalism and all of the rest of these things that Trump has really brought to the surface here, aside from all of that, you also have the various institutionally racist policies that are being pursued. So things like... Uh, 
uh, environmental racism, which, you know, to some degree, at least, you know, minimally, maybe we could say, but to some degree, at least was uh, at least partially being addressed with various regulations and uh, the, you know, the the organizations uh, within the government, like the EPA and so forth. All of that is being gutted now, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the the, the dumping of uh, coal deposits and all of the rest of these things. These things are all coming at coming up to the surface again, really progress that was made since, say, 1970, 1971, uh, around that time, this is now being rolled back as well. So when we're talking about self-defense, we're talking about defense of the communities in a physical way from violence, but also from the kind of environmental violence that is sure to be rained down on these communities for the next four to eight years, uh, and obviously longer than that. That's right. I mean, the the environmental racism piece has has gotten uh, worse, as you're saying, and and with the destruction of the regulatory state, you know, as as part of this administration's agenda, um, any any little victories and gains that we've won at the policy level um, are are quickly being undone, and um, and so this is you know um, we cannot. Katrina taught us in the U.S. South that we cannot depend on um, either of the political parties or the state itself to contend with the very real issues that oftentimes it and um, and the corporate interests have produced, um, you know, many of the problems, if not most of the problems we deal with, but they are not going to be part of the solution. We have to build these solutions ourselves. And at the end of the day, that's what the People's Movement Assembly process is about. It's about building the new as the old uh, falls down around us and and continues to um, attack us in different ways. So we have to contend with, um, you know, um, racist policies, backwards policies and, and violent policies um, as we're building the sort of the new forms of economics, of democratic governance and of community safety um, in all of the ways that you're that you're suggesting um, safety from physical violence, but also safety from um, um, environmental violence, from um, miseduc- the violence of miseducation, um, there, there's of, um, of no health care and people just being forced to suffer when they live in a, a, in a world where um, there's medical procedures that could alleviate that suffering, but there's no access to health care. So the, the, the many ways that violence shows up in our, in our communities um, is, is real, and we have to contend with that. We have to build new ways of, um, of providing, producing and providing and distributing um, what we need to not only survive, but thrive um, and, um, and, and really with um, people all over the world, um, we have to build the new, um, the new world that, um, that these people who are ruling right now are just vehemently against. And so, um, so the People's Movement Assembly has, has caught on. It's, it's, it's happening in different parts of the country. You have people in rural Oregon using the assembly process. And I mean, they have militias that are running entire towns out there in Oregon. Um, and, um, and so it's they're they're building this in in the face of extraordinary violence. But these assemblies are popping up because I think it's a new way of um, of doing things um, that's outside of the sort of political party framework 
um, but that is rooted in a sort of movement identity that is not only growing in this country, but has been growing for the past few decades in, in the global south. And, and these movements are, um, are the vehicles that we have and that we need to sort of um, to contend with power and to build the new world. Um, one of the things that uh, I often um, come up against or, or engage with uh, a number of my you know, colleagues on the left and particularly of a lot of my uh, uh, black comrades is this uh, struggle for the last eight years to try to um, you know, shake off the, the, the mythology of what Obama was and what Obama represented, particularly to, to, to black communities in the United States, but in general to liberal America. And so there was this constant struggle and, and, you know, struggle slash exasperation that people even eight years, even eight years into his administration were still in some ways mesmerized by him, willing to overlook all of the horrible and criminal uh, policies that were put in place, uh, crippling, uh, uh, you know, black America in terms of employment, in terms of health healthcare in terms of literacy and all kinds of other uh, indicators, uh, material indicators, but also uh, generally in terms of the policies of imperialism, attacking countries in the global south, the destruction of Libya and Yemen and, and Syria and Iraq and on and on and on. You know, so fighting against all of that for the last eight years and now here comes Trump, and there is a tendency among many, uh, you know, progressives to forget everything that happened the last eight years, and let's focus only and entirely on Trump. And the danger, of course, implicit in that is that you then get this nostalgia for Obama overlooking what it was really like for those eight years. Now, there is that uh, to contend with on the one hand. On the other hand, we also have to contend with a with a tendency to minimize some of what Trump is doing by pointing out how it's the same as Obama, whether it's the deportation of immigrants, whether it's the bombing of countries, or what have you, constantly pointing out, well, Obama did this, and Obama did that, and Obama did this, in many ways deflecting some of the attention away from what Trump is doing as we speak. And so I want to get your take on, on this dichotomy, or maybe it's a dialectical relationship between uh, you know, educating people, especially young people coming into the movement, about the continuity of this regime that that doesn't uh, end with one administration that extends administration to administration decade to decade while at the same time having the specificity to struggle against that which is currently in the white house and currently in control how do we hold both of those things in our minds at the same time and how do we struggle against both of those simultaneously yeah, it's a it, it is it's a key question. I for us, you know, one thing that we point out in our southern location sort of helps us to to um, to see is that there has been no major shift in power relations um, in terms of how this country's ruled since the days of enslavement. And so uh, you can have you know we've had. Um, uh, presidents like uh, Jackson, you know, and we have two southern cities. We mentioned Cooperation Jackson there in Jackson, Mississippi, Jacksonville, Florida, named after this, uh, you know, really barbaric U.S. president. Um, whose, and, portrait, um, whose portrait now hangs in the Oval Office. Thanks whose to the portrait. Prison. And so, you know, that is the connection right there. We're looking at Trump and we're looking at a portrait of of Jackson behind him. And, and each of the presidents, you know, um, have been part of this same 
um, this same, you know, capitalist, racist, um, patriarchal, um, and, and at the end of the day, imperialist, um, state. And, um, and so nobody gets off the hook with that. Now, you know, the, um, the Obama administration, uh, in many ways, um, and although we, we couldn't have known this at the beginning, created a basis and a rationale for um, the production and the development and the, um, the arming and um, of these, these racist right-wing militias that have just, um, you know, spread and grown over the last eight years. And, and that's something that we also have to take away from what happened during those eight years. And, you know, um, I think, and, and, and you're right, too, that we can't um, overemphasize what Obama did um, um, as the head of this um, of this imperialist country, um, and not um, emphasize them in terms of Trump. And but you know, and and I think that for many people, I'm I'm doing this interview from my father's house. You know, he grew up in an era where the law of the land said he was an inferior person. You know, he was a, um, a um, not not fully human. And so for him, when he saw, you know, a black man become president, that's going to hit him in a certain way. And I respect that, but he had no illusions and I have no illusions that that is going to mean, um, you know, Somali children are, are shot in the neck by drones, um, because we, we are part of and leading an extraction economy, you know? And, um, and so, um, so we have to deal with all these realities and we have to deal with them, in a way that really looks at power and the relations of power and how they're able to maintain those power relations, um, regardless of, uh, who's in the office of, of the white house. Yeah. And you know, it it just, it, comes to mind every time I come up against this issue. Uh, it comes to mind 2009. I remember being at an anti-war rally. It was the first anti-war rally in D.C. after Obama was inaugurated. This is like February 2009. And literally on the spot where we had previously had tens of thousands of people marching against Bush, we had like less than a hundred at a rally uh, against Obama and against the expansion of the war in Afghanistan. And at the time, I was, I was, you know, you know, screaming as loud as I can. Obama's doing this. Obama's doing that. Obama's doing this. And I remember people saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! That was what Bush was doing, though. Why are you always focusing <laughs> on what Obama's doing? We know that Bush did A, B, and C." And I said wait a second, I was organizing against Bush too, but Obama's in the Oval Office now. Obama's the one signing the death warrants. Obama's the one keeping Gitmo open, etc., etc., etc. So he's open to all of the criticism, and it's important that we make those criticisms. And now it's like eight years later, and I find sort of the mirror image of that happening again. And so it's like, once again, I'm up against the same point. Yes, we emphasize the continuity of the regime, of the policies, and so forth, but we don't do it to the exclusion of what's happening currently and not to say that you know there are millions of people who are doing that but i i stress that there is a a qualitative difference in some of the uh execution of a lot of those policies by trump and by trump's people versus by obama and we need to recognize those differences and they need to be you know for lack of a better word ammunition in our organizing work that's right. That's right. And um, there's there's certainly um, uh, not only differences, I think that 
um, there's a sort of under-recognition nationally of the profound shift that this last election really meant for yeah. uh, the country and for the world. And yeah. um, and we're amidst a, a global shift. This is not business as usual. This is not let's wait and see what happens in the midterms. Um, you know, um, there is a big unknown um, and um, and we have to we have to do things a lot differently um, than have been done before. And um and I think, you know, at the end of the day, um, uh, we, we have what it takes to do that. We just we have to connect to our sort of our liberationist history and um, and 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 build power um, to contend with whatever comes at us, some of which we, we, we don't know, um, but we know it's coming. And um, and so we have to build ways to defend ourselves. We have to be able to produce and provide for ourselves. And we have to have, um, uh, you know, infrastructure that can hold the power that we build and advance it forward in terms of governance, uh, political decision making and, and, and the like. I couldn't agree more. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there. We're just about out of time. Um, I want to thank you, Emery Wright, for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Again, Emery is the co-director of Project South. Visit the website, projectsouth.org, and uh, follow them on Twitter, at Project South. Emery, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. It was great to be here. Thanks for your work. Listeners, thank you again for tuning in. Sorry for the couple of days delay. We should be back on our usual schedule as of uh, next Monday, whatever date that is, March 13th. I think that's right. Um, So anyway, thanks again, listeners, and I will speak to you all again real soon.